Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Tone Alley's podcast. I'm your host, James, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, Timmy Long. Hi, everyone. In the hot seat this week is Keith Walsh, writer and broadcaster. How's the farm, Keith? Good, man. Good, man. This is it's a real honour to be great on to, with the two Norries. Yeah, two legends. Thanks very much for asking me. No, great to have yeah, you here. Thanks for being here, Keith. Uh, for the people that don't know you, right? Mm. And a lot of people will listen to you and they'll know you because you're in the media. But will we go right back to where you're from, where you grew up and what it was like? Um, grew up, born in a place called Edwardstown, outside, well, close to Lanesborough, where I lived. Lived yeah. there for four years and then moved into the real Midlands, into Athlone. Yeah. A place called Willow. Heart of the country. <laughs> yeah. A place called Willow Park. The most exciting thing about Athlone was, like, there was a stone there somewhere that was, like, the exact middle of Athlone. Which really? used to kind of, as young lads, you'd visit every now and then, you go, I'm in the, or I'm in the middle of Ireland. This is yeah, amazing. Yeah. This is a stone that's the middle of Ireland. And then I found out a few years later it wasn't at all. Um, but <laughs> yeah, grew up in Athlone, uh, late seventies, eighties. You know, mm. interesting times. Yeah, yeah. Um, if anybody from the Midlands or Athlone will know, like Willow Park is where I grew up. So it was, uh, it was nice, nice place to grow up. But it yeah. got a bit rough then, you know, okay. as the years went on. Would it be like a local authority kind of an area? Um, no, it did become one. Um, like when we moved in, it was grand. It was nice, you know, semi-D houses. And, yeah. uh, but there was a college across the road, so a lot of student houses. And then it's sort of like they yeah. built some um, local authority houses out the back. So it's kind yeah. of, it's fairly, like I drove in, I brought my kids in to visit it yeah. a few years ago. And we basically were, you know, when you're in the housing estate, you're driving, trying to drive it, you know, five or six or seven yeah, yeah. kilometres an hour, some blacked out windowed BMW passed us out on the road. <laughs> Yeah, welcome yeah. back to Willow Park. You know, I know but every area has that one estate, don't they? Mm-hmm. I, I remember I was in a treatment with these lads from Clamell, and they used to talk to me about Stag Park, I think it was called. And then there's there's we know there's one or two states in the north side as well, and Ballybeg and Waterford, and all, there's all kind of like yeah. Uh, does even in kind of rough areas, even the people that live in rough areas, does even in the state within that rough area, mm. there's fucking rougher than everybody else. Yeah. Mm. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You feel kind of posh. Like we lived in the posh area up the front, you know. Yeah. And then as you went further into the estate, you know, it just kind of yeah. got worse, you know. Yeah. But uh, no, there's like, I mean, there's great estates in Athlone, Battery Heights, uh, Sarsfields, St Mel's. I think has been knocked down now beside the football uh, ground there. But yeah, Athlone was an interesting place to grow up, you know. But you know, usual sort of like, you know, I went to school um, with the brothers, and you know, um, you know, eighties Ireland kind of. You kind of look back, and it's it feels dark. Like the 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 play I wrote, Pure Mental, is is about going back to that time and revisiting it, you know, and sort of dealing with traumas and childhood. Things that things that happened in the child in your childhood that you kind of thought were uh, normal, or you know, and and were normal in a lot of okay, cases. Kind of well, like if you t- think about if someone says domestic violence, you'll always think about you know husband wife, wife on husband. But domestic violence for me is like you know parent on child, and I would have grown up in a house where violence was used all the time uh, by way of punishment or. Or whatever, you know, whatever. It was, it was dependent on the mood of the person. Yeah. Um, and I would say, like, I mean, I talk about it in the play and I'd say my mother probably wasn't well, you know. Um, and so you're kind of growing up in a house where there's physical violence and you're kind of like trying to mind yourself. You're trying to, you know, disassociate or trying to, you know, figure that all out. Or yeah. You're on eggshells. All you're on eggshells and you're also trying to regulate your own emotions you know so you don't spook the horses or you know you, you keep your head down and all that kind of stuff and that becomes part of your makeup then and then you're going into school and like the brothers then are doing the same you know so yeah there's it, no getting away from it but you're sort of you're you're looking to the adults to sort of show you the way and educate you and bring you up and show you that 
and and, and you're kind of everywhere everywhere you go, your teacher, your parents, you're you're being met with, with you know, yeah, some violence, something yeah. you don't like. You know, it's 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 a it's an odd place to it's an odd way to grow up. You know, and even like that must have been the seventies, like this the eighties and seventies, like yeah. growing up. Um, and even before that, you know, what I was thinking of is when you were explaining is being in the school with the brothers back then. Like today, the difference inside, I was inside in a school today and they have a sensory room. Mm. They have a room where just the first years have their little, there's a few coaches in the room, a little kitchen, mm. and they all sit down and they have their lunch away from the, the rest of the school. And I went in there and it was my school growing up as well. And I was just completely bewildered. I couldn't under, I I I really genuinely could not believe the transformation. Like my old classroom, which would have been the science lab where I was, I got thrown out, uh, suspended for buzzing the, the Bunsen burner inside the room, was now the sensory room with a little kitchen and couches and stuff where the kids could go. The other room where my woodwork room was, where, was, was, in, was where all the, the first years would have their lunch and sit down in coaches and have a chat and a discussion and teachers would come in and talk to them. And I said, what a time to grow up like. Yeah. Back in the 80s, the 70s, like just for us alone, it was, it was a really, really, we were just coming out of the real whipping and the ruler age mm. where you get the lash. The 80s was, you know, but before that it must have been horrific, like, to be what, in school. What was it like for you in school? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, I mean, I had some nice teachers, you know, early on and then, but then as you get older, you're, you're meeting these big men, you know, mm. that are angry and frustrated. And what, were, what, where were you academically and sporty? I was good, I was good, I was good, interesting, played football, played the guy, played hurling, played, I was good at, at, at uh, my do my homework and all the kind of stuff, but it just kind of like, I, I just lost interest after a while, you know? Um, and that kind of, I was a class clown then kind of, you know, so I'd get myself in trouble, but it was almost like, you know, you, you have this thing of kids getting in trouble because it, it, the only attention they're going to get is negative, yeah. but they prefer the negative attention than no attention. Yeah. So you're just acting out all the time. And that was kind of, that was my, my thing was just to act out all the time. And I probably had a lot more energy than, other kids, which yeah. sort of subsequently uh, found out why, but like so, I was probably quite a boisterous uh, young lad, um, and trying to find sp places to put your energy when you're being told to sit down and be quiet, you know, all the time is kind of mm. it's weird. Like you talk about the school now, like when I talk about uh, being, you know, getting being brought up on my mother and the, the the domestic violence and all that kind of stuff, and people like young young lads are like or lads that grew up the same time as me would say, but sure, we all. We all got that. We all got a slap never did me any harm kind of thing, you know. But that wasn't right. Mm. I know. And that yeah. that led on to, you know, where we are now. Like, I, I talk about it because there are lads out there in their 40s and their 50s who are dealing with this anger and they don't know where to put it. Mm. And they can't access, access the, the, the it's, it's hurt they feel. They feel let down, they feel sad and they can't access that. All they know is yeah. anger. The only emotion they can access is anger. And that's and you can see that in Ireland now coming out. Yeah. It's anger because they can't access the hurt they feel and they can't express it. They can't express their emotions. And that's the problem. You know? And they actually don't even understand where that anger came from. And you just said it there. One of them, some lads in Clonroe, a slap never did nothing for you. Mm. There's your reasons, you know, growing up in a violent environment as a young child and noticing that any form of conflict was dealt with with violence. You know, I grew up in a similar home and all conflict. There was no discussions around the table. There was nothing like that. Or there was no one pulling it to the side and saying, listen, that kind of behaviour is, is not right. Mm. You know, we don't do that in this house. No, it was violence. And, and that's where we carried on then, myself and my brothers in our own lives. We understood that if if you needed something in life, Use violence and you will get it. Mm. Or if someone done something to you in life, use violence again and it'll make you feel better. Mm. We never understood that you could have a conversation with someone and be assertive. But these are things we learned. We we learned later on in life. And but going back to your point, and what you were made, there's so many men walking around now, but they're not educated in the reason why they feel like that. You know, they feel the anger. This stuff happened as a young child, 
But the gap in between is the lack of education. They don't understand where it's coming from. Yeah, and my thing is, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody. I'm not pointing the finger at my mother. I'm not blaming anybody. I'm not pointing the finger at the brothers even because they had their own hardship. They had their own uh, things to deal with, their own... Um, I'm sure stuff happened to my mother. I'm sure stuff happened to... Like, could you imagine being like 14, 15 and, and joining the brothers, you know? Yeah. Like, no one's pointing the finger, but if we don't talk about it, yeah. then we don't get any better. Mm. If we if we pretend or we think it's okay and, and it should be okay and we should just learn to live with it and shut up and stop going on about it, mm. then we don't learn from it. But yeah. we have to be vulnerable. We have to express ourselves. We have to talk about it because that's how you heal. And talking is, which I learned few years ago with therapy ter talking is the greatest form of healing you can get mm. and expressing yourself mm. because you express yourself and you talk about the things that happen to you and you talk about your experience as a young person it comes out and you stop carrying it around in your head and it's out in front of you and it's out and you're sharing with somebody else and it's not as heavy in your head it's gone and that allows you to that lifts the burden and the, and the weight that's holding down the other emotions mm. and then you're sort of suddenly able to go actually you know what I feel like I might cry now I feel like I might and then you're suddenly you're laughing yeah. at things and you're you're not getting angry with people and you're not getting frustrated and you're not you know Mm. mouthing at the lad in the other car when you're stuck in traffic or whatever. Do, do you know what I mean yeah. it's, it's all related you know and, 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 and it's even, even you made a great point there around uh, thinking about stuff so if, you, if you're thinking about something that happened and there's a memory attached to it which then there may be an emotion and if you start talking about it the emotion is up and if you feel that emotion in your body while you're talking about it you're releasing the strength of the energy that's trapped within your body mm. And that's why it's very important to talk about this stuff instead of bottling it down here and being consumed with fear that you think you're going to be judged if you talk if you don't eh, talk about it. You know, it's very important to talk about this stuff with the right person, obviously, which may be a counselor or someone you really, really trust. trust yeah. But talk about it. Mm. But it's, you'd be amazed the amount of people because I I talk about this stuff openly and then people get in touch with me. You'd be amazed the amount of people who are in marriages or you know they've partners that it, they they've never told like not their darkest secrets but you know secret things that they hold on to themselves and and they're not even talking openly and honestly with their person that they're closest to and they've lived with for like twenty years, which is amazing. Yeah. And like that's the greatest thing you can do is have open conversations with the person that you that you love. You know, it's, one, it's not, one, not one of the guests we had on uh, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk in his book, The Body Keeps the Score. He's a leading expert on post traumatic stress disorder, and he he did his research on Vietnam vets, and he said post traumatic stress disorder. It's not what happened to them; it's what happened inside them when the event occurred. So for one person. It might be getting a clip around the air in school on a daily. That, that might be it, get on with his life. But for the next person, he might be a bit more sensitive or a different personality. That clip around the air could be really traumatising for him. So it's what's going on inside you when the event happens. And he also says something what, what you were talking about there, about kind of creating the, all the attention in school, even though it was all negative. And he said, sometimes very traumatised people, they feel so disconnected and so numb that they create or seek out drama because mm. it's the only time they feel alive because if they don't have the drama what have their emptiness and their own thoughts so they create all these events it's kind of like what you were doing yeah yeah because it's boredom or whatever you know you feel yeah. like it's, it's too quiet here you know so, you know what, what what we all know now we're kind of uh, adverse childhood experiences if you have experienced the stuff that you're talking about you know you're more likely to end up in the services later on um, and experimenting can become problematic. What was the teenage years for you like? Did you just they're drinking or how did that work out for you? Yeah, I don't know. It's pretty good. Like, I mean, I think my my way of dealing with things was to be kind of ended up being just to be very good and not yeah. to be a problem for anybody and to do kind of what right. and you know, I mean, it was it was sort of a, like it was a difficult sort of juxtaposition between wanting to like um, kind of rage. Against whatever, but and not disturb your man, but also not disturb anybody and not be bold and not like yeah. get told off in school or get you know, you wouldn't, you just want to be out in society being like a good man and like yeah. doing all the right things. So I didn't drink till kind of late, but but once I did, then it was kind of like it was good, it was good medication for yeah. what how I was feeling. It was it was bam, you know. So mm. I mean, I started drinking probably 17, 18, and uh, 
And then I took to it quite well, you know. So there was drinking and then like recreational stuff like smoking and hash and stuff kind of would yeah. have been a big thing. Were you shy? Were you shy? I was, I was an introvert, yeah, I yeah. suppose. Like I, I was and, and I suppose drinking just took me out of yeah. that. Um, and I, you know, I was able to express myself. I mean, look, when I was with my friends, there was there was a certain, I feel like I, I copied people, you know. Yeah, fitting in. So I was fitting in, so I'd reflect back. If someone came into a room, like, and I was in a room, and I'd reflect back what I thought that person wanted me to be. And I've been doing that up until very recently, until I figured out I was doing it, you know. Mm. So, I was never re so I'm still in the process of figuring out who I really am as a person and what I really want. Because for so long, I was just like, like, it was great for radio, because you're just like yeah. trying to be this character on, on air and uh, be the person you think the, the listeners might like, you know. Which kind of works in a way because you take on a character, you play a part, and and that's it. But you know, it's much more, it's much healthier for me to just be myself, um, and not to try and. I I'd be very sensitive to people's moods, mm. so I'd pick that up. So if someone was in a bad mood, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be like me trying to like cheer them up. I'd just like join them, you know, and yeah. be like, oh, geez, we're solemn now, are we? You know, if they're if they're in a good mood, I'd be like, oh, I better, yeah. you know, I better join them in, in where they're at, you know. And that was kind of like so it was very confusing, but. Yeah, drink was great, you know, um, and I never really, like, I mean, my 20s were kind of, you know, uh, my 20s were for, like, I, I genuinely felt like I I wanted to sort of travel, I wanted yeah. to drink, I wanted to, like, I would have been, I would have been reading books about Jim Morrison or reading books about Jimi Hendrix and thinking yeah, that's yeah, cool, yeah, isn't yeah, it, yeah, taking yeah. drugs and drinking and, and just being a kind of a bohemian sort of, you know, and, and you know, my 20s I did, I travelled around the world and lived in London for a while and lived in Dublin and, you know, did, you know, there was the, you know, the rave scene and all that kind of stuff, you know, and at one point I actually had to leave Dublin because I couldn't stay with the people I was with anymore so I just we, we, we moved to London for that a, was a mad time yeah <laughs> I fucking laughing away to myself in my head but yeah we moved to London in, in 98 99 did you ever go to Sir Henry's back home that time uh, I never got down to Sir, Sir Henry's but um, I, uh, yeah it was more sort of like um, there was a place called The Pod in, in Dublin that we went yeah. to a lot um, every weekend you know and then that just became it was every Saturday night and it was a, like that's what you did that was your ritual you know Yeah. and then it kind of became every Friday night as well and then it became Sundays and then you weren't going into work and then you're like you know and it's like okay I just need it's to get pretty slow I need to get out of here and the only way I could see of getting out of here was like I need to just cut all ties leave and just yeah. go and you know and, I, and I'm and I'm I'm kind of good like that in a way that like because I gave up drinking about three years ago like and, and I've run marathons or I've done this or I've given myself goals and tasks and that's kind of what makes life interesting for me is like oh can I how can I push myself how far can I go on this how what can I do with this and like when I make a decision I'm like okay I need to leave this scene I'm gone and then we went to London and we saved up and then we went traveling, you know. So that was kind of like, uh, I'm good at a challenge. But also, like, I enjoyed that feeling of just being, mm. like, just letting myself explore the world. And I think, you know, I probably learned a lot from my experience because I never quite ended up in trouble. You know, I was doing it in a kind of a, you know, there's, like, it's interesting how people talk about drugs, but yet... You know, if you live in D4 and you're going to a house party, and it's different, isn't it? It's acceptable then, you see. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So uh, so I was probably just very lucky in, in what I was doing and who I was doing it with and, and, where, and my, my upbringing. We did a podcast there with uh, The Witness. Do you know the Nicola Talent podcast? Mm. She wrote a book with The Witness. Um, but he spoke to us here about uh, being a child and having to carry your drugs and deliver drugs to huge houses in Dublin, you know, with big gates and passing the heroin and the crack and the cocaine in the door, you know. So uh, there's no real acceptable drug because that drug has to get you through a lot of abuse, neglect and violence. Mm -hmm. um, when did you start working in the media then? So, yeah, so after I came back from travelling, uh, myself and a mate, Joe, we were, uh, we were sort of, I mean, I was always interested, I'd studied acting in my 20s, so I'd gone to college and studied acting and um, somehow managed to finish that course. And I didn't have the belief I needed to sort of take that. Like, I went to about three or four auditions and I was like, oh, it's not for me. I didn't get any of these auditions. You know, not knowing that you have to go for hundreds of auditions before yeah. you get a, an acting job. And I was just starting out, but I kind of gave up on that. But so when I get, came back from travel and I felt, okay, like, I'm going to have a crack at this. And part of what we'd studied in school was writing. And I was writing, I started writing kind of comedy characters. So I was I was into watching shows like The Fast Show or mm. I don't know if you remember um, Vic and Bob or Reeves and Mortimer, these kind of like um, comedy sketch shows. Um, Harry Enfield, I suppose, yeah. kind of, you know, so comedy characters. Um, 
so myself and Joe, he'd studied film and I was, I'd done a bit of writing. So we were trying to write these comedy characters. And the best way for us to get these comedy characters somewhere broadcastable, we didn't have money, so we, we couldn't film them. We, we, we didn't know anybody in the television. So, we, you know, it's not like we could just go into RT yeah, and say, yeah. we've got an idea for some characters for a TV show. Radio was the most successful. So we went to a community radio station in the north side called Near FM and we... We did a course there with them for six months and they gave us a show every Thursday night where we went in and did these, we wrote these comedy sketches and performed them live on the mic, like with the, we were like <laughs> hold, holding the script and like, you know, doing the voices. And like one of the sketches was called Air Fingless, which was um, an airline based in Fingless. Uh, and uh, like the characters were called, like there was a chap called Elvis because he had a quiff and there was a, a chap called Anto and there was a, a lady called Tiffany Kiley and they all worked in this little airline that was ran out of the back of a house in, in Fingless. So that was the kind of stuff we were doing, you know. But but the the comedy stuff uh, got us onto Spin when that started. Yeah. So for first uh, youth regional station was Spin and we used to do a show every Saturday there and we do sketches, play tunes and a bit of presenting. And then we got the breakfast show and then uh, over the years the presenting got more, became more than the, the comedy bits. And we kind of, I kind of dropped the comedy stuff then, which I kind of regret, but just that's the way it was. And then I ultimately ended up on The Breakfast Show on 2FM as a presenter, you know, and, and still wrote a little bit because I was with Bernard O'Shea, yeah. the comedian, and yeah. Jen, and we kind of wrote sketches as well and had characters. So there was a bit of uh, element of that as well, you know. The Republic of Telly. Mm. That was very good one. Yeah. Did you have any other than that? Did I have any? I, I I did record a couple of sketches for it, but then yeah. I don't think they made it to air. You know, yeah, yeah. it was actually a good while it lasted. You know, it was. Uh, what's it like hosting the breakfast show? I mean, and to FM, like, what kind of figure? What kind of an audience have you got? Like, it's a big show. You know, mm -hmm. is there pressure comes with that? Um, does any of the stuff you had in your childhood ever interfere with that? Or like, do you have to kind of keep on top of that stuff? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, because there's the imposter syndrome, isn't yeah. there? Like, I mean, I just didn't believe that I, this person was asking me to do this show. Um, and I was asked to do the breakfast show. Someone rang me and said, would you be interested? You know, I was working on another radio station and they said, would you be interested? And I was like, really? You sure? You know, uh, and because I'd worked with Bernard O'Shea before, this guy was bringing Bernard O'Shea and he was bringing Jen in. And they were, they'd been on the Republic of Telly and then they wanted someone to sort of host and run the desk and, you know, be the be the sort of the straight man to them, I suppose. And I was like, yeah, well, yeah OK. I couldn't say no, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot of imposter syndrome. I was like, yeah, I'll probably get found out now uh, pretty soon. You know, because I I'd, I'd felt like I'd been yeah. kind of just winging it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So even though I'd been in radio for well over 10 years at that stage, more. I still felt like I was winging it. I was getting away with it. But don't we all feel like we're winging it? <laughs> we all feel Every like day. we're winging it. Yeah. <laughs> we're, on, we're, we're on the Late Late Show with Ryan and they say, oh, you're great presenters, are we? And we, were, uh, we were in the Justice Media Awards, the Law Society of Ireland, very prestigious, and they were saying, great piece of journalism. And I was looking at him, he said, great. <laughs> was it? <laughs> we got an award up there, no, yeah. ahead of, it, like, we were the only non-commercial entity in the room, like, it was amazing. But like you, you, imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome, yeah. Uh -huh. But um, I suppose you wing it until you make it, don't well, you? Well, that's well. I mean, you fake like it. Michael Lee is up in the hours. How the fuck am I? Somebody, somebody's going to fucking find me out here, man. It is. <laughs> it's funny because I'm listening to like Bono. If, if anybody thinks of Bono, you just think of you know a massive ego, or whatever. Yeah. Same thing, you know. And he's like, he says, my ego protects me. You know. I was yeah. out, I was I was um, I was inside and work the other day, and I was just kind of looking at my own life, and I was. Do you know what I was saying? I was just thinking to myself, I was saying, how in the name of God did I get here? How did I get, how did I get to where I am today? Like, you know, I, like I, a dream. I, I'm a guy that was never on social media in my life, ever. And then we went to just go automatically from something like that. But you know the way we always look at other people who are in the media and films and we look at them and we we think, of what does it actually make, take for somebody to, to get to where they are? Yeah. And you know what? It just happens automatically. It doesn't take anything. It's just, it's just a lot of hard work. Obviously, yeah. mm. doesn't happen automatically. You know, I, when I look at people that's successful in the media, before I started doing this, I would think, "Fuck it, they have a grand cushy number there." Yeah. Obviously, <laughs> but now that we're in it and we're trying to make it, does It's very hard mm. to make it to a stage where you do have a cushy number. Like there's a lot of like ten years you were in it before you got that big break. You know. And it was duty, yeah, and you worked hard yeah. for it. But people don't just fall into the good jobs in the media. They do, do a lot of groundwork. You know what the breaker is? And it just came to me. Fear. If you don't overstep 
that bit of fear that you have around radio, comedy, film, singing, acting, it doesn't matter. If you don't take that first step and every other step after that, you're going to feel fear for every step. You're just going to be, you're just going to live a normal, normal life. But if you face the fear and you go with it, that's how you kind of climb as well, isn't it? Yeah, do you want the fear to own you or do you want to sort of like, even though you might be anxious and you might be fearful, but at least you're trying, you know what I mean? At least you're giving it a go and, yeah. and that's all. Anybody. But but I'd imagine you guys probably did a lot of talking, um, or that, you know, a yeah. few years ago and did a lot of counselling, did a lot of therapy. Meet 2024's most anticipated robot vacuum, Eufy X10 Pro Omni. With powerful 8,000 PA suction and MopMaster's dual mop pads, it keeps your floor sparkling clean. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards, and Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. And all that kind of stuff. And I definitely think that that helps you. Yeah. Because what I, I mean, I mean, like, if I look at the 20 years of my working in radio, that was, that's great. And for any outsider, you're thinking, geez, that's a great achievement. But I actually only feel like I'm starting to live now. Yeah. That I'm away from that. Yeah. That I'm just that I went to therapy and now I know who I am and I'm I dealt with my demons and I'm yeah. you, do you know what I mean like I only feel like I'm starting now I'm I, I'm almost like gosh, I'm nearly fifty now and I you know I need more time you know do you feel that you've within your life you've fulfilled your your purpose here I, or, or, or is it something that you're still kind of searching for yeah I feel like I'm I feel like I'm getting there I feel like I'm figuring it out like I would have like even in my radio career, would it just you do what you're told? You sort of don't try and you know rock the boat, whatever. Whereas now, if I'm on social media, I'm calling out the lads who are you know mm. who are trying to kick poor defenseless people mm. from the Ukraine out of their hotels, whatever. I'm I'm saying things that are that are angering other people, and I feel very good about that. So I'm using my platform to try and show the other side, mm. you know, so the fascists or the right wings. Uh, organizations don't win because they're they seem to be the loudest at the moment so it's yeah. trying to how can i use my platform to say good things so i do think that in a way i haven't fulfilled like i've a, my wife and my children like even that side i have like i feel very proud of all that but you know uh being an influential person um i i definitely like to sort of step into that role more talking about mental health talking about therapy trying to help other men isn't there a bit yeah. of responsibility when we have platforms and privilege of education and opportunities to speak out on behalf of those that don't. Mm. Do you know, um, in, I know relatively recently you were diagnosed with ADHD and autism. Yeah. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about that and what was the lead up to that, where you went for the assessments? and? Yeah, like that was, um, that kind of answered a lot of questions really. And, and when I got the ADHD and the autism, uh, like autism I still don't really understand. So I can It's sort such of, a huge spectrum, isn't it? Yeah, but, uh, you know, sometimes ADHD and autism can go hand in hand and then come together. And obviously I was kind of had, I was either high functioning or I'd figured out ways of dealing with it or appearing or just, as you know, as I yeah. said earlier, like just doing what other people did, you know, copying yeah. in social situations, copying what other people did, behaving how other people were behaving. And I learned, you know, how to behave and I learned how to hold on to myself and how to carry myself and all that. I'm still looking into the autism side of things, but the ADHD thing, it's, 
you know, uh, if you've got ADHD, you don't make enough dopamine, so you, it's very hard to focus on something, and that's where procrastination comes in, that's where not getting your work done comes in, that's where not getting your schoolwork, homework, studying for exams, all that kind of stuff, that's that's lack of focus, you know, because you're, if you don't get dopamine from something, you've no interest in it. Yeah. Your brain is saying, look for the dopamine, where's the dopamine? The dopamine yeah. is in the pub, or the dopamine is the in the nightclub, or the dopamine is on your phone, or the dopamine is in the shop, or the do it's not here at the, you know, in your books that you're supposed to be learning, you know? So that's what you're dealing with all the time is the pull of the dopamine. And that's very strong mm -hmm. because you don't have enough. Other people, some people, most people do have enough. Um, and that's where the focus is. Um, that's where it comes from. But so that, that explained a lot. And it, it meant to me that I wasn't stupid. Mm. I just couldn't focus on certain things, yeah. which is a huge relief. So now I'm like, okay, now I can, I can, I mean, I learned stuff and I'm not, thick or I'm not like I, I, I read books but I found it very hard like it was a lot of it was hard work to do certain things um, so that was great and it, it sort of explained a lot about my childhood it explained a lot about who I was growing up it explained about, a lot about my personality and then the ADH uh, the ASD side of things the one thing I do know about that is this chronic anxiety so people who, a lot of people who have autism there's a chronic anxiety that comes with that um, and I didn't realize that I was, I had this chronic anxiety all the time. I thought everybody felt like this all the time. But when I realized that not everybody felt like that all the time, I was like, oh, right, okay. Because what I would do is I would think that, right, the reason I'm nervous on the radio today is because I'm shit at being on the radio. And I'm going to have to really fucking knock it out of the park to convince everybody that I'm not shit and I'm not nervous. Yeah. So I used to think that... You internalized it, made it about, I, it like a, a pathology. I don't know that it was yeah. something that bad about you. I attached the anxiety to things. I'm anxious because of this. I'm anxious mm. because of that. I'm anxious because of the drink. I'm anxious because I'm anxious because I'm on the radio all the time and yeah. I'm not any good in it and I have to work really hard. Unlike other people like Bernard O'Shea, who's a natural, he's just like, he's naturally funny. I have to work really hard all the time to keep up with those people because I'm shit. And, I, and it, you know, it's harder for me to do that. So I was associating it. So it was so for somebody to say to me, you have this anxiety. It's all the time. It doesn't matter whether you were there was a lion chasing you down the road. Actually, you'd probably deal with that better than most people yeah. because you're you're, yeah. you're used to that level of anxiety. You're at a nine all the time. So if you ever go to a 10, yeah. you lose the head. Mm. Whereas most people are at a one and it takes a lot for them to get up to an eight or a seven. You're just up there all yeah. the time. I'm like, oh, geez, that explains a lot. Like I remember going for acupuncture and the lady was like putting these pins in my head and they were like popping out. And she was like, are you, are you stressed? Very tense. <laughs> are you stressed? Are you, are you suffer from stress? Like, no, not stress. <laughs> I didn't even know what stress was. Like, oh, grand, grand. But it was like, but so. Because you were living in that state of being. Oh, you're like right. that all the time. Yeah. So I didn't know I was stressed or anxious. Couldn't sleep properly. It's the other thing, if you're not creating dopamine during the day, you don't sleep properly. Mm. Because you, that's important for your sleep. Do you know, there, uh, I looked at a great example of of the two different types of brains, someone with ADHD and someone wrote. And it's like, say, for example, the assignments I have to do at the moment, I procrastinated massively. I was six weeks late overdue on my assignment because I literally could not get myself onto the chair. And to start these, I was so stressed and anxious over And... For people, normal people, when they have to do something and there's a deadline, they can sit down and they can stimulate it. They don't make and click and it'll go up. But for people with ADHD, it just won't. It will not. There's no stimulation. Any task that they believe is too difficult, there is no stimulation from it and they will not do it until, this is the key, until it becomes like somebody has a gun up to the side of your head and you have to do it now, you know? And that's and that's when you get things done. It's like everything is left to the last minute, five minutes before it has to be done, and you you know you have to do it now, so it's like, oh, and it's breaking every, it's breaking your heart to do it, and that's how it feels for me too. It feels like, right, I will leave it to the last second because I cannot and I don't want to do this thing because it does absolutely nothing for me. Mm -hmm. Nothing. Get nothing from it. You know, until it's like, right, I'm six weeks over, do you know? The people inside in the access centre on UCC are saying to me, we think you should cancel the course because we don't think you're going to be able to continue because you're not able for it. And then my head was saying, you know what, no, I'll get this done. And I said, I'll have it in before the Christmas. I actually had to take two weeks off of work 
to do, to do it. the assignment. And every time I had to go into the office, into the, the shed, to do the assignment, I would pick the phone up and, and text him and ring him, ask him to go for coffee or take on something else. Mm. After setting two weeks aside to do these, I was like, I was running from it constantly. Mm. But the, what I mean? but the only time you'll do that then is when you have the rush of doing it at the last minute and it has to be like that's a rush then you're like oh. then you're then you're focused then you're on it and and the good thing with people with ADHD because it's not all negative is that we are very good in crisis situations we are very good at figuring stuff out when the shit hits the fan we are very good at turning it on so like you'll get someone in a work situation who's really good at planning you know has the here's the six weeks of the plan this is what we're going to do we're going to do this 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 and this like so I work in PR so you might have a PR activation you've you know you've got your 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 you know, your celebrity coming on this day, you've got to take these photographs, you've got to do this, you're going to meet the press then, you know, and that's the plan. But if anything goes wrong, this planner will freak out. Like, oh, Jesus, you know, mm. this hasn't this hasn't gone to plan. Whereas the ADHD person won't make the plan. But yeah. when the shit hits the fan, they'll step in and come up with a solution. Yeah. So, th so they're valuable people to have in the workplace, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When you got the diagnosis, what do you do with that information then? Do you, do you go, are you taking medication, like not sure open about talking about that, or do you do supports like counselling or coaches, or what do you do? Um, yeah, so my, I'll tell you what, it was, when I left 2FM, I started with um, a therapist, a guy called Luke, and like Luke, and going to therapy was a game changer for me anyway, right, so this is before, you know, yeah. three years before I got an ADHD diagnosis, but it just, op like talk, going to th talk therapy opened my mind to things, the possibility of things. So I was being honest about things. I was, I was, um, I was able to talk to my wife about things. I was able to be honest with her. I was able to be vulnerable. I was out, you know. So, so, so I was dealing with my emotions. I was dealing with my my childhood traumas, all that kind of stuff. So, I'd, so I'd done a lot of the work. So it was when we were looking at my son in school, and he wasn't, you know, I would have probably been the dad who would have been just. You just need to knuckle down. You just mm -hmm. need to get your shit together, and just you just need to do the homework. That's what, what I would have been like. But my wife was convinced there was something going on. So we sort of went on the journey with my son to figure out what was going on with him and schoolwork and why he didn't want to go to school and what was wrong with him and all that kind of stuff. So that was the journey for him to get the ADHD diagnosis. Now, I probably, like, I can remember my wife saying, I think there's something. I was, Will you shut up? He's grand, you know? Yeah. And being very dismissive. Yeah. But because of therapy, I had a different mindset. So I was like, okay, well, let's see. You know, I was talking to him. I was trying to sympathize with him. I was trying to figure out, you know, I was with him on the journey. And then, mm. so like I was with him on the journey and then my wife was with him on the journey. So we were answering questions about Finn and he's this and he's that and he, does he do this and all that. And my wife was answering the question going, yeah, and that's also Keith as well. You know, so she recognized that I was the same as him. <laughs> So we got Finn's diagnosis, yeah. and then straight away she said, "Right, you're next." <laughs> Couldn't get two for the price of one. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly, yeah, because yeah. they are expensive. They are expensive. I know. Yeah. But she had me diagnosed um, well before the the psychiatrist did, and you know, it, like we we I was talking on the phone today, and we were just like we were like Finn was sent to us. Yeah, he was sent to us because life is yeah. so much better now. You know, mm -hmm. because I'm not frustrated with not being able to do things. I'm not angry. I'm not like I'm not. You know, the therapy was great, the meditation, the all I've done I did all the things, you know? Yeah. Vitamins, eating properly, going to the gym. I did it at all. And yeah. I went to this psychiatrist and at the end of the consultation he said, Now you found what you were looking for. Mm. And yeah, and then and and then you there's another journey starts mm. which is the 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 medication. Yeah. And it's not something that they give you the one pill to fit all shoes for. It's nothing like that. There's a process mm. on it. You have to find the right dosage, the right medication, you know. And there is, in society, people look at medi uh, medication for ADHD as something that, oh, no, no. But in reality, in your own view of what it's done for you, has the medication helped? Yeah, so I started taking medication before Christmas. I'll tell you, so I wrote a play called Pure Mental, which is about my... You know, basically what happened. Is it a one-man show? It's a one-man show, yeah. Breakfast show finished up in 2FM. I felt like shit. Obviously, the imposter syndrome, I was like, I was right. Yeah. You know, I am shit at this job. And and now it's coming back, you know. It's, it's... So so the play is about that and my life after that, going to therapy, getting sorted out and, you know, figuring all that. So, so I wrote that play and I toured it last Christmas, before last Christmas in 2022. It's hard to remember what year. 
2021. And then in 2023, in January, just a few weeks ago, we remounted it in Newbridge. So, like, when I did the tour in around Ireland with Pure Mental a year ago, uh, on two occasions I had a panic attack on stage as I was doing the show. I found it very difficult to learn the lines, right? Like, Janet, who directed my play, was like, I, she was sent from God because she the patience of a saint. I was like frustrated. I just kept, like, I couldn't really, I didn't want to burden her with it. But in my head, I was like, you're shit at this. What are you doing this for? This is ridiculous. You're put, what are you putting this poor woman through, making her direct you in this play? Like, what are you, what are you on it? What are you doing? What's going on here? Like, just give it up. Um, but I managed to learn the lines, you know, at the last minute. Um, and I managed to get through it, but I had panic attacks. And like, I, at one stage I was... Thankfully, I knew the lines inside out, upside down, back to front. So I had a panic attack on stage. One half of my brain was saying, get off the stage, yeah, you're in yeah. danger here. The other half of my brain, brain was doing the play. <laughs> and this continued, like, and I was like, oh, my God. And I knew in that, in that moment, if I left the stage, I'd never, ever go back on the stage again. Yeah. I couldn't give in to it. So there's a will there. Like, there's something in me that's, that has a will that, like, even as anxious as I felt, I went on the radio. Mm. I'm on the stage having a panic attack, but I won't give in to it, you know. So there's something in built into me, and maybe that's something my yeah. parents instilled in me or something, you know. Yeah. You know, because parents have bad and good sides. But when I did that play in January, I'd been to the psychiatrist. He'd given me my medication, which is Concerta, which is, it, it's kind of like a, like caffeine, I suppose. It allows you to focus. Mm. It, it, it clears your head. You know, you're not going 90 miles an hour. You have to sit down. And you get your work done. And it's not like it's, it's not dopamine, but you get your work done and you create your own dopamine. So learning the lines, I was up every morning during Christmas, like Christmas morning. I, I got up early before everybody else. Stephen's day, I got up early before everyone else sat in, in the sitting room learning my lines. Loved it. Loved it. Like it was, it was like a different play. I was like a different person. I got up and performed at two nights in Newbridge. Loved it. No anxiety just loved the experience and it was a totally different experience you know because I performed it I was like I was in it I was I was enjoying it I was able to like there was no I wasn't doing it in panic like you know what I mean yeah, yeah. like I like the way I performed before was like I need to get this play out I need to make sure no one thinks I'm panicking here I want to make sure that people think I'm relaxed even though I'm not so there's all that going on like so in one way I was an, I was an amazing actor but yeah. it probably looked a bit stilted yeah, yeah, yeah. but this time around with the medication I take serotonin for uh, for the anxiety I take um, concerta for my focus and I absolutely loved it it was the greatest experience like changed your life Keith yeah because because I was like I, I would often ask myself why are you putting yourself in these situations why are you writing a play why are you on stage this is horrible for you I'd have nightmares about it I wouldn't be able to sleep in the days before or at like it, there was no reason for me to put myself through that. Like, you know, you'd be kind of going, just a quiet life. Yeah. You know, working in a shop or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I'd be thinking like, why that. are you doing this to yourself? <laughs> and I, I don't know. I'd like, I don't know where that came from. But obviously, yeah. when, once I figured out the ADHD and the autism, mm -hmm. I was able to enjoy the things. Obviously, I'm like, yeah, I like this. Yeah. This is great. I love it. And I, I, and I could sleep without worrying about it the yeah. next day. I yeah. knew tomorrow would look after itself. Yeah. Whereas before, I'd look... I can't, I couldn't sleep. I, yeah. I Like most Sunday nights, I didn't sleep because I was doing the breakfast show on a Monday morning, you know. And it's very important, right? And just for some people that may think that, is it about labelling yourself as somebody, somebody's, I don't know, with ADHD mm. or, mm. you know, it's actually not, right? It's not about labelling yourself. What it actually is, is about understanding how you work mm. as a human being and figuring it out and understanding why you behaved in certain ways in the past and why you didn't weren't able to do this and working on it. Yeah. Working on it. There's no better like when I found out I was dyslexic in, 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 in third level education. When that psychologist told me across the table, she says, Yeah, Timmy, you're dyslexic, it was like, Whoa, she's the last 36 years, I thought I was a tick hunt. Mm. I thought I was stupid. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And now all of a sudden, this explains everything because I was asked doing a bit of research on people who are dyslexia, you know, and it just all made sense. And all that, that core belief that I had, that I was stupid, no good, just a tick fucker, mm. you know? Yeah. Just started to slowly disappear. Mm. And it, it, it's gone. And then I, I, I started to get more confidence in myself. 
you know, and then I started working my strengths instead of my weaknesses yeah. around education. You know, so got answers, it, like exactly. Got answers. Yeah. Remember you were talking there, it reminded me of you know, like when you're backstage going on the Tommy Turner show or the Late Late Show or the Claire Bourne or when we're about to come out in the opera house, it's like uh how the fuck did I always put myself <laughs> in these situations where you're full of fucking fair anxiety? But afterwards, then you're after getting over it. It's after going well, and that's the best feeling ever. Mm. It's the I buzz afterwards. Yeah. I, I literally couldn't even talk. Like, he's like, I don't even know how words came out of my mouth. Uh, literally, like, well, yeah. we were backstage in the opera house, Timmy was like trying to psych, psych us up, you know? Oh. The big handy nearly rock my back, then he's pure rough, like. <laughs> <laughs> have you any plan? Have you any plans on bringing short cork? Uh, hopefully, I came during lockdown to the Everyman, and oh, sure, there was sure, sure nobody was coming to see <laughs> players. So it was bad. Yeah, yeah, so hopefully we'll do it again. I'm kind of like the, look, the players there. Uh, you know, if anybody's interested in bringing it to the local theatre, give me a shout, yeah. and you know they can follow me on social media and, and get in touch that way. But um, yeah, I, like I have, I've been talking to people about bringing it. There's a show in, in Bray in May, and I want to do like arts. Um, uh, arts festivals around the country during the summer and I'd like to bring it to prisons as well. Oh, great. Yeah. So there's like a version I can do which is like bells and whistles, music, sound effects, backdrop, projection, shiny floor, you know, big yeah. light at the front and, uh, but I can do a totally stripped back which is just, I just need a chair really, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really hoping to kind of, it's just, look, there's nothing really, if you look at that play, it's a one-man show, it's, I just talk about my experience growing up and I talk about, you know, how I felt when I lost, like a lot of men in their 40s, they lose something they love, like a loved one or a job or something, and it can really take you down. Mm. Um, And I think if you don't deal with it, it will take you down. Mm. And the best thing I ever did was going to therapy to talk about it. And it kind of kept me just in the right place so I was able to kick on from there so I didn't go down. So it's it's, it's that journey. I go back to the 80s, I talk about my childhood, I talk about school, things that happened, people that died when in the 80s, when I was young, lots of young people seemed to be dying. I don't yeah. know if that was a thing. But anyway, so talking about all those things, all those fears, all those ghosts that I carried around in my head and just getting that all out there. And it's therapeutic for me. There's nothing wildly crazy that happens. It's it's kind of an everyman story. Like you'd look at that and go, yeah. yeah. Like, But it's for me, mm. other men to see a man saying, this is all that happened to me. Like, it's nothing crazy, you know? I didn't shoot anybody or I didn't like... But even in that, I still had to deal with it yeah. to get to a point where I didn't, you know, I when 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 the shit hit the fan, I was able to go to... Ther- I was able to... When I went to therapy, I was able to deal with what was going on. Do you know what I mean? You have to deal with your shit yeah. or your shit will deal with you. Yeah. And that's all it's about. But I, So I want to try and get it out there and, and, and get people, get, get men especially... To see it, you know. Yeah. Before we finish, yeah. do you want to ask? I was just going to um, talk. You're big into sport as well, mm. so I, I was just going to say that, that you do a bit of football and yeah. you you do a bit of running as well, just to kind of help your own draw mental. Well, you see, well. That, that's the thing. Like you, you, you can get an ADHD uh, um, diagnosis, but you still have to do. You still have to exercise. You still have to eat properly. You still yeah. have to get. You know, your your sleep will improve because of the dopamine. But yeah, I I went back to playing football. I love playing football. I always loved playing football when I was young. And that's another thing, like, f- remember the things you love doing as a kid and start doing them again. And don't feel like you can't do yeah. them because you're an adult, because that's when we were, we were all at our happiest, no matter what shit we went through, we were all at our happiest on the green outside, whatever we were doing, whether it was like digging a hole or playing football with our friends. Like that was, mm. that's when you were getting your dopamine because it was the camaraderie and the football. Yeah. And I love playing football. There's a few groups that I play with. I'm on the WhatsApp group and I'll go down to Monday night, Wednesday night. It's just five a side or eight a side or whatever. And I love it. Yeah. And I walk and I cycle and I try and build my exercise into my day. But yeah, all those things like exercise, eating well, it's all still important to do. Like it doesn't mm. matter. The medication isn't going to fix it, you know. It'll just help you um, exactly. uh, get your dopamine. That's yeah. it. But you have to look after Actually, it. You know? yeah. Exactly. At, at Lawn, we're at the pinnacle of football. Oh man, don't talk. My uncle's friend played for At Lawn Town against AC Milan yeah. in San Siro in the York. Oh, yeah. He did. Yeah, and they at came Lawn back. the big thing. Yeah. They're the oldest club in Ireland. Mm. Yeah, yeah. They aren't there. Yeah, AC Milan came back to Athlone and played them in Mel's. And did, uh, yeah. there's a great picture of the AC Milan lads getting off the bus. And like St. Mel's is a, is a, is a back row. Like it's 
potholes and mud. <laughs> And they're like getting off there with their flares and their pointy <laughs> leather Italian shoes and their suits and, and, and their Macs and all that getting off this like uh, yeah. fan fancy nineteen uh, seventies yeah. bus and at lawn and stepping in the puddles and uh, the glory days. Oh, the glory days. Yeah. And uh, yeah, who's your friend that plays? Uh, ask me afterwards. All right, yeah, yeah. I can't think of his name at okay. the moment. There was but a great player who played for at lawn in the eighties, Larry Wise. And I always remember the graffiti on the wall as you walk down into the into the pitch into St Mel's Park. They play in Lissy Woolen now, so St Mel's has been flattened. But there's a great bit of graffiti. It was Larry B Wise, and I don't know. It's all, always stuck yeah. with me. And he was a great footballer. He was like they were like the celebrities of of of, yeah. of Athlone of my day. Before we finish, have you any recommended reading for people that might be listening and affected by some of the issues? Is there any books you went to to get answers or? Yeah, ADH. D 2.0 is the new version of the book ADHD written by a couple of doctors who are uh, experts in the field. Uh, so ADHD 2.0, absolutely brilliant. Like, even if you don't have ADHD, even if your child doesn't have ADHD, like one of the things that's really good for a child with ADHD is is our hugs mm, yeah. and being told uh, and positive affirmations. So yeah. being told you love them yeah. consistently. So like, so for myself, my wife with Finn, we're like, okay, we have to hug them every morning. We, like, it gives the dopamine that they're lacking. That's the dopamine. And oh, you say, like, yeah, yeah. first thing in the morning, it's a hug. I love you, proud you, bud, or whatever it is. Now he's, you know, he's getting a bit older, yeah, so it's yeah, harder. Yeah. But, you know, you, but he'll still, mm. your children will let you do that as long as you want yeah, to, you know. So, so even, even those little things, even if your child doesn't have ADHD, it's um, and balance, powerful. Balancing exercises are very, very good as well. Juggling, yeah, another thing. Just standing on one foot, yeah, balancing. Yeah. It helps them to be more structured and organised. And and um, yeah. I, I can't think of the word, but it's supposed to be very, very good as well. Yeah, yeah. I listened to that book on Blinkist. Yeah, yeah. Fifteen minute book. Oh. <laughs> you didn't have time. That's about I'm I can focus for the first thirty seconds. That's, oh, that's the most ADHD <laughs> thing ever. I, I listened to the book about ADHD. <laughs> it's fifteen minutes. Yeah. I know. Fifteen hours condensed to fifteen minutes. <laughs> oh jeez. The pleasure talking to you, Keith. Oh, that's great to be here. Yeah. Thanks for time. I'm sure we'll uh, it's connect. Too fast. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. We connect down the line again, please, guys. We'll be back for part two. Not yeah. a bother. God definitely. Bless. Yeah, you definitely have to leave us now. How we get on with it? Cheers, lads. Fair play, Keith. Slime. Meet 2024's most anticipated robot vacuum, Eufy X10 Pro Omni. With powerful 8,000 PA suction and MopMaster's dual mop pads, it keeps your floor sparkling clean. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards, and Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.